Welcome to this edition of the Million Dollar Mastermind Podcast. This is where we pick the brains of high achievers from all walks of life and get their hard-earned, real-world insights on winning. I'm your host, Larry Wydell. So the amount of wealth, that's been, since the internet, the amount of wealth that's been created, it's not generationally. You can create an app and all of a sudden become a billionaire. So uh, I think the speed at which wealth is created has changed a lot um, with the trajectory with technology. Um, I chaired the Disruptive Technology Center at Stanford University, and I, I'd see companies that just it was just a brilliant 25 year old kid had a great idea and he gets backed by Sequoia. And five years later, he sells his company for half a billion dollars. So it happens much quicker. Um, I think we're only in the third inning in the evolution of family offices. I think. Today, family offices are very inefficient, very fragmented, and also very siloed. And I think that's about to change. But the reason I think that family offices are important is twofold. First, the less important from an economic standpoint is I think that as private equity and venture capital disrupted the public markets in the mid-80s because it was a better model, so let's say you have a company and you've got to report to a guy like me every 90 days. It's hard to run a company efficiently, very challenging. So private equity and venture capital came in. It's like 2% covers the overhead, 20% I make money. If you make money, it was a better model. You don't have to report every 90 days. The, the industries took off. They exploded. What's happened, though, in, in many instances is that many of these firms have become too big. And a lot of the private equity firms have bastardized the business. And it's become an AUM, assets under management game. Right. And, so I think what's happened is family offices now, as, as private equity and venture capital disrupted the public markets in the mid-80s, family offices are starting to disrupt private equity and venture capital. And the main reason is they've got patient capital. And it all goes back to alignment of interest because let's look at how everybody's compensated. So if you're a partner at a private equity firm, you know, you're compensated to flip companies every three to five years. Just it's not good or bad, just the way it is. Um and so if you look at the typical model of, of, of these companies, fam, uh, private equity firm A buys a company, sells it to private equity firm B four years later. They try to make money on it and sell it to private equity. It, so it could be sold three to four times in a 20-year period. If you look at all the taxes and all the transaction costs during those 20 years versus a family office who has something called patient capital, and they just buy the company, hold it for 20 years. They don't have the transaction costs. They don't have the friction of the taxes. Um, it's just compounding. It's an exponentially better model. The problem is that right now, family offices are not as efficient as they need to be. That's starting to change. And you've seen some. I've, did, I've done a podcast with Tony Pritzker and Paul Carbone, who's a good friend. I mean, they've institutionalized this. So not only can, can they compete with Carlisle and Blackstone, they actually have a competitive advantage because they don't have to flip companies every three to five years. So that's the main reason advantage for, for family offices from an economic standpoint. I'll also go from a, from a philanthropic standpoint. Um, family offices are not a panacea to solve all of the world's problems. But I think family offices can solve many of the problems. And I'll give you just a couple examples. My first boss was Michael Milken from Drexel Burnham. Really? Michael, um, brilliant guy, developed prostate cancer. And when he developed prostate cancer, rather than throwing $100 million to the American Cancer Society, he built like a VC fund. He put $2 million here, $3 million here, $500,000 here. And because of him, 
you and I and all the male listeners will die with, but not of prostate cancer if we live long enough. And then one other example is Bill Gates. I would argue he did, his family office did more for for the vaccine for COVID than, than the U.S. government. So I, I don't think you could run a philanthropy exactly like a business, but I do think you could run it more business-like. And I think that a lot of these family offices are very philanthropically motivated. And whatever the cause is, I think they're going to solve many of these big issues that are not going to come from the government and it's not going to come from the corporate sector. Well, let's just say it's not Bill Gates. Let's say it's Bob Jones and he's got a couple of billion dollars. And uh, what is the trend? His re- you know, and the reason why it's, it's fun to talk about this is because we have a lot of up and coming or current uh, entrepreneurs, super successful, wanting to get better. And with the end in mind of, uh, you know, well-run businesses grow and, uh, you know, you want to be in this situation down the road. And it's it's just nice to have. You're probably not going to understand the whole thing the first time it's it's put in front of you, but it's good to get the framework in your mind and get some of these words and thinking. And also, it's 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 nice to have an end goal, you know, that I I want to end up in a uh, uh, family office. And so the relationship in there, let's just say with Bob Jones, uh, how uh, he goes to a family, he's got the money. Now, he goes to the family office. What does the family office do for him? Is the family office a person, a team of people? Uh, When you say you have 100 uh, family offices under your umbrella at Diamond Wealth, uh, 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 how does that work with those uh, individual uh, family family offices? Sure. No, it's a good, it's a very good question. Um, family office is just an entity, right? So family office, it could be one or two people. Some some family offices have 50 to 60 people. It's all over the range. And it's basically they represent the interests of the family. And sometimes it's first generation, sometimes it's second, sometimes it's third, sometimes it's later. We deal mostly with the entrepreneurs who created the wealth, mostly first generation. So, um, you know, it's the, the family offices um, they decide really on what they want to do and how they want to grow their assets. Some family offices um, are just looking to preserve wealth, and that's fine. And some family offices are very aggressive and want to double and triple their net worth, and that's fine too. It just depends on what your goals and objectives are. So the Bob Jones in this situation, he would set the tone, I want to conserve or I'd like to grow or I'd like to be in, uh, you know, I have some causes I want to uh be able to impact. And then not knowing how to do that, he would go to you uh, or your company and say, how can you help me expedite this? Would that that be part of the purpose? Well, I mean, what what, what we do, not entirely. So so what we do, I invest in all the deals myself. So basically what we'll do is um, we invest just in private markets. That's private equity, venture capital, um, credit, real estate, things like that. I even though I made money in the public markets, I think it's very difficult today to create alpha in the public markets. I just have money in the index funds, but you can do it in the private markets. So um, we'll put some money in. I'll syndicate a group, fifty, hundred million dollars, whatever it is. I kind of know who likes what, and then um, we'll put together an SPV, uh, special pur- special purpose vehicle, and um, because of that, we get really incredible deal flow and good execution. And typically we were able to get better economics um, because we could put in so much money so quickly. I speak a lot throughout 
the world about family offices. And the best compliment I got didn't even seem like a compliment at the time. Somebody just came up to me and said that was really authentic. And that, that was that was what he said. And I thought about it for a while. I didn't even take it as a compliment, but then I really thought about it for a while and it really was. Because when I spoke, I, I'm not I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I, I'm not the richest guy in the room. I'm not I, I try to surround myself with people that are smarter than me. I try to surround myself with people and learn from them. So I think that um for me, the you know, the most important part of life is not just business, it's relationships. It's your relationship with your family, which is I think the most important, relationship with your friends, relationship with your community, relationship with your business. So for me, um the relationships that I have um nurtured over the 30 years of my career um they are truly authentic and i don't make money in everything i do but um the alignment of interest is there so i think there's a level of trust that we have that that, that family office have with me and again part of the reason family office were created it's not that all of a sudden these people who sold Beanie Babies wanted to manage money because that's not really what they wanted to do. They right. just stopped, they stopped trusting Wall Street. So if you think about it, 68% of the family offices started since 2000 and half started since the crash. And what happened during the crash? You know, I used to run a hedge fund, so I could put up gates. Gates are basically, you know, I could, you can't sell. Well, right. if you're a widget manufacturer in Wichita, you don't, know, you don't know what gates are. And I think a lot of people felt taken advantage of. And, and I do agree that in many instances, there is an inherent conflict of interest um, on Wall Street. I mean, I remember when I was um, first started at, at Drexel, I graduated from Northwestern, and uh, I called my dad one time and to ask him a question. You could either have a buy, hold, or sell for a company. That's how the investment bankers would rate them. And I said to my dad, I said, you know, it's interesting because they've got a lot of buys and some holds, but they don't have any sells. Like that, I, I don't get it. And peace kind of smirked. He said, call me when you figure it out. And about six months later, I figured it out. And what, what it was is these are investment banking clients. So they're not going to put a sell on an investment banking client where they make their money. So that to me is an inherent conflict of interest. Another conflict of interest is a lot of these firms, a lot of the um, wirehouses, they're not even fiduciaries. I mean, they're not, which, which is really head scratching. And that's why RIAs were created because they are fiduciaries. So I think a lot of this with family offices, the, the the growth in family offices, a lot of it really comes back to the lowest common denominator is trust. And so uh, uh, you go out, you you graduate from college, you get your graduate degree. Uh, what's your entry into this world? Did you have a, do you, were you just looking for a job or did you have a hard target in mind that you wanted, where you wanted to go? Well, look, I think a lot of success is, surrounding yourself with the right people, right? So um, Northwestern is a very good school and we had very good companies who came to interview at the school. At the time, um, you know, Drexel Burnham was like Goldman Sachs and steroids. I mean, it was the most profitable firm on Wall Street by far. That's where Milken created junk bonds and it was just, it, it was a machine. Um, but I came in, I got the, so I got a job at Drexel, which was fantastic. But I'm there two years later when Fred Joseph is, I'm 24, I think at the time, and Fred Joseph, the CEO, says we're going bankrupt. And I'm watching all these men in their 60s and 70s and 80s openly cry. And that didn't happen in the 80s. Many of them lost all of their money. So for me, the takeaway 
for me, and I don't consider myself an entrepreneur, even though I did start my own company, the takeaway for me was that I would never be loyal to a company ever, but I would always be loyal to people. And I learned that lesson from Draxel. Says that if this could happen to Draxel, it's going to happen to Goldman, this can happen to any firm. But I would always be loyal to people. And that's sort of an adage that I've had as I've grown my business, um, that I'm very loyal and trust, trusting of people, but not of a company. A company is just a bunch of shareholders or X, Y, Z. It means nothing to me. Now, when your first two years there before, before the uh, bust, uh, you know, did you, thinking back, were there signs or what was it like? In there, I mean, was there an arrogance? Was there what was it like that, that led up to that? Arrogance is an under. Well, look, it was arrogance, but it was also it was arrogance, but it was like th these would these literally were many of these people were the smartest guys in the room. I mean, they, they, these the talent level at Drexel was just phenomenal. So I was on adrenaline just because I'm working. I love working around really really smart people and being challenged. These were brilliant people. And if you look at what came out of Drexel, Blackstone, and you know all these firms that came out that they're a result of Drexel, it's still a tight community. So it was really an anomaly. Um, I was just happened to be there. <laughs> you know, I my goal was to be there for hopefully fifty years and hopefully run one of the divisions one day. But uh, two years later, the company imploded. So I, I just think that there was some sort of um, it's like. I'm a big basketball fan. When Jordan played and, you know, they had the championship seasons, there was just an aura about them, about the Bulls. And I think there was that feeling at Drexel, um, which was really neat to be a part of. I, I certainly didn't, didn't earn it, but I was part of it only because I worked there and, I, and I, I could see it. I could sense it. When you went out and started your hedge fund, you had, by necessity, uh, having to be rubbing shoulders with smart highly successful individuals. How did that impact? I, I have to think, Ron, you're in an enviable position to have some of that, like if a, a bee goes out and gets pollen from the flowers, or gets that you had a chance to pick up uh, some, uh, some good things, good insights, good instincts, good information, good contacts from the circle of people that you were working with. What do you think? Hundred percent. I I think that what I try to do is my dad was a banker and he used to always tell me. He said when he'd have a meeting, he could always tell who the lawyer was because the lawyer in the meeting was always the one who was trying to show that he was the smartest person in the room. Uh, right. And the entrepreneur would come in. Sometimes he's loud and sometimes he doesn't talk. And his job there was not to be, but to find the smartest guy in the room. And that's really what I look at for myself. I, I don't want to be the smartest guy. I want to be the dumbest guy in the room. I want to be the poorest guy in the room. I want to be, so I want to surround myself with people that are better than me. And as a result, that's how you learn. So that's kind of how I look at the world. Yeah. And so what was your, as Pinnacle progressed, you know, growth forces you to, uh, you know, you swell up and you've got to come up with new solutions and, and things that worked in the, you know, things that worked at a certain level don't work anymore in terms of uh, uh, personnel, delegation, tracking. And how did you evolve as the leader of the team, uh, keeping up with all the moving parts? How'd you develop? 
Well, the hardest part for me and probably for most entrepreneurs is delegating because, you know, you know, you just think I want to, I can do everything better than other people right. and you trust yourself, but to delegate, um, in order to grow, you have, by definition, you have to delegate. So I, what I did is I just found people in areas that were smarter than me in different areas that I trusted implicitly and then learned to delegate, but that didn't come naturally. It yeah. came after trial and error. And it came from the fact that if I wanted to stay here, um, I could do everything myself. But if I wanted right. to grow and to get up in here, I'm going to have to do that. So that's what caused me to do it. And at some point, I think we realize one reason we're so much better at other people than doing things is we've done it more than they have. And you got to, you reach the point where you uh, find people you're willing to trust. And even if they stumble out of the gate, uh, stumble and fumble, you know that uh, next week they won't. You know, and uh, you've got to give them a chance to drive the car, even if they get a bent fender, uh, you know. I used to, when I, when I was younger, I used to own, only want to be around the smartest people in the world. But, um, and that's important, but trust transcends that, right? So you want to be around people, because no matter what business you're in, you're going to have setbacks, sometimes yeah. major, sometimes have nothing to do with you. It could be from a macroeconomic event. And as long as you're with pe good people who you could trust, things will take care of themselves. I truly believe that. And so what was the toughest for you in your evolution to somebody who can keep up with many more spinning plates and keep things, keep them spinning? The toughest part for me was, um, well, delegating certainly was the toughest part for, for me. Um, and then to to stay focused and and to really you know ultimately um you know you see a lot of people who are like look at themselves and you know pat themselves in the back and how terrific they are or whatever i think to um realize that a lot of whatever success i i may have had a lot of that came from luck a lot of that came from the fact that i was born into a family that valued education a lot of that came from the fact that i was born in the united states i mean you could go back all these different things so um which comes back to gratitude so you know i i just feel that um you know it it's such an important part of life and most of us don't where we get so stressed out on all these different things and worries about things but there's so much to be grateful for and yeah. that's what I really try to focus on. It's not always easy, but I try to. But when you get up to this level of success, which people want, you know, a reason I want to talk about it, you've lived it and you've lived it for a lifetime. Uh, people want to have the amazing, you know, staggering year after year success. And, you know, where you walk in the room and you're everybody's hero and people are patting you on the back and you're taking, you know, you can buy anything you want, go anywhere you want, meet anything you want. You know, you're you're living this life on another level. How do you keep that from uh, going to your head? Because, you know, the, the, how would you address the issue of, and you had to face it pretty early on, of uh, success being hard, harder to handle than failure? It's a great question. Um... Dick Fold has become a friend. Uh, Dick Fold was the former CEO of Lehman Brothers. And when Lehman Brothers went bust, um, prior to them going bust in, two, in the financial crisis, 
uh, he was probably the most powerful guy on Wall Street. Um, he was uh, he was a brilliant guy. He was very smart, and he looked at the world through the lens of you know I'm you know I am more powerful, I am more successful, et cetera, et cetera. And then when Lehman Brothers came down, he got humbled, and and I think he's changed and he's grown a tremendous amount as a human being. And he's actually a wonderful, wonderful person, which people don't necessarily see that. Um, I think that um, I gave a talk to uh, Northwest to my, in my alma mater, and they said, "What are the you know what are what's important to you?" Now it'll come back to a story that my my daughter, um, who was eight years old at the time, asked me. We have a thing in our house where if the phone rings three times, it's an emergency. I was in a meeting with a very large family office and the phone rang three times and it had never done that before. So I excuse myself and I take a deep breath and it was Bella, my baby. And I'm like, Bella, what's wrong? I'm thinking she's in the hospital. So she's like, daddy, what are the five most important things in life? Like, what's wrong? She's like, no, I need to do this. For so I explained to her that's not an emergency and we'll talk about it when we get home. So I you know, took a deep breath and like I sighed and I'm like, okay, she's okay. I come home, fast forward six hours and she's like, that's the project she's working on. So she's like, I worked on it with her. She's like, she wanted to be popular. She wanted to be a good listener. She wanted to be a good sister. She wanted to be a good friend. She wanted to be a good daughter. Those were her five. And then there's only a child can do. They, they turn it on me and they're like, what are yours? Like that, I'll get back to you. And I did. I did think about it, and then I thought about it for a while. And over the next couple of months, and then she kept agging me, "What are your five? And then I did. I did think about it. And I wrote it down. And in what I, for me, they were in order of importance: love, gratitude, attitude, balance, and laughter. These are the five things for me. Um, other people, it's something totally different. But these are what's most important to me. And if there was a direct correlation between wealth and happiness, I would just tell everyone to be try to get as rich as you can. There's not, it's not an inverse correlation, but there, it's not a direct correlation. So I think that the people that I surround myself with, um, what's the point of being successful if you're miserable? What's the point of being successful if you're already, if you're stressed out all the time or you don't like what you do, or you're not part of, you're not close with your family. I mean, all of these things. So yeah. I think that the, that keeping these things in the back of my mind and I've got it, and my wall says love, attitude, love, gratitude, attitude, balance, and laughter. These are my five things. And I think that's something that I constantly remind myself of. And, you know, you know, life goes by like that. I mean, we're, we're 10, we're 20, we're 30, we're 40. It, it just goes by so quickly. Um, you just have to be grateful for what you've got and just enjoy it, enjoy it and, and think things through. And I think that's really important. When I first board meeting, you're with all these advisors and you have, everyone's got an agenda. Like, but my agenda was just to, hopefully I could add some value. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of stuff I couldn't help at all, yeah. but there's certain, there's a few verticals that I can add value and I would just try to do it. And if I just come in with, through the lens of, look, I know what I know. I know what I don't know. I don't know more than I do know. And what I do know, I'm going to add value to that. And that's kind of how I looked at it. And some of the people on the board, on, on any board, you know, they want to be the smartest guy in the room. That's not me. I don't want to be. I, I just you want to find, figure out. You, you find you find that uh, one upsmanship going on, that testosterone is at play even in the boardrooms. They want they want to show off. Ego. <laughs> I I have thought of writing a book about it. I mean, ego is a double edged sword. On the one hand. Um, 
you know, you, you need a certain amount of ego to to do well and succeed in life. On the other hand, it's also our, our Achilles heel, right? Um, because it, it, it's destroyed many people too, your ego. And it's not, uh, it's not confidence, it's actually insecurity. And I didn't, I didn't fully understand that when I was younger. So I, I, I looked at it through the lens of, um, you know, I used to look at vulnerability. So I watched a lot of TED Talks. Brene Brown, I was, did a TED Talk on vulnerability. If you would have done a podcast with me when I'm 25 and I would have brought up vulnerability, there would have been a 0% chance that that would have been a topic. But I think the fact that we are vulnerable. So I, I share a couple in Tiger 21. It, it Basically, it's a group of people that have had success and we talk about different issues but when people are authentic and honest um and, and vulnerable people open up i i was at, i was at the dog park the other day with a guy that i knew a little bit you know our dogs hung out a lot and we we knew each other for like a year and a half but you're not that well and then we were talking and i was just he's I was on the phone and, and I was telling him what was happening. There was some issues that I was having with, with a kid and I was just honest, like it, it, you know, here's what it is. And then he opened up to me. He's like, yeah, I've got this. And so I just think that we're all, if you look at it, it's philosophical, but like we're all in it together. I mean, if, if you look at it, like it's me against the world and I, your life's going to suck. But if you look at it, how big is it, you know, how big is the whole, uh, I, I think you could live a much more content, happy, satisfied life. So I, the metrics that I use are probably the metrics that a lot of the, your listeners who are 25 used, use currently and, you know, what they want to do, how they want to accomplish it, how much money they want to make, where they want to live, how they want to live and all that. And, and I'm not minimizing that, but I'm saying you get to a point in life when enough's enough. And um, you just have to enjoy what you're doing and you have to be real and you have to be authentic. And, you know, Shakespeare's quote, you know, be true to thine self. I think that's probably one of the most prophetic things anybody's ever said. I think it's really true. And so. 12, you're, you sit on the advisory board of 12 privately held companies and you act as chairman for four of them. Isn't that. Uh, you know, being chairman of a board, isn't that a time-consuming thing? It does consume time, but I will only do it if I know the people. If I really like the people, I really believe in the company. So if I get to hang out with a friend, you know, for four hours every you know yeah. month or so okay. that, that I really like and respect and I like what he's doing, it's again, it's not work. Yeah. I don't look at it as work. Well, let's talk about the not work side one of the great things about being in business for yourself having your own company is you can take the time uh you know you get the money but the you know making money i've always felt sorry for guys that own you know they own and manage the restaurant because they're working they're making a lot of money but working 100 hours a week and they never never get away from it because you know you have the people problem and the server didn't show up and the managers you know the manager stealing money uh you know around the corner and you know it's just a rat race and so many jobs you get out there where you have all the money but you don't have any discretionary time and then uh, some places, they, they have plenty of discretionary time. They just don't make any money. And so how have you balanced that out with your life to where 
uh, you do have the enjoyments, the recreation, uh, you know, the things that you want to do that are fun for you and your family to do. And what are some of those kind of things you've been able to do that maybe you wouldn't have been able to do working inside, you know, a big, uh, sure you know, like a, a Goldman Sachs or something like that? I think part of it, you know, my dad passed at 57 and I think that had a big impact on my life. And I realized, you know, life is very short and I, you know, when I'm a hundred years old, hopefully I don't want to lie, sit back and say, I, I wish I worked more. I don't think that's going to happen. Right. Um, so it's really the relationships that you make. Um, that's the key. I, I love to travel. So we get a, you know, fortunate. We, we travel a lot as a family. Um, I love to ski, you know, we, we, we do that. So um, to me, I just think figuring out what's important to you. You know, I read, I don't read as much as I'd like to, um, but um, figuring out what it, what's important to you. I've got friends who love being in Colorado and just love climbing, you know, just climb, hiking every day. Right. And that's fantastic for them. I like, I like it. I don't love it, but I like it. Um, I like other things. But I just think that you have to find time for things you like or what's the point? Our time is our most important thing, right? It's the most right. precious commodity we have. And what did I want to do with that hour more than anything? I just wanted to watch her play. Yeah. And she got upset with me and she argued with me and I ended up not going and whatever. <laughs> but then the next time I did go and I explained to her, I, I just like, it just, it doesn't make, it might not make sense to you. Like why, what possible fun could it be to watch somebody else hit tennis balls with a pro um it makes me happy i really love doing it so I, well, I think watching my children um grow and develop um family um friends developing good you know relationships there was a ted i watch a lot of ted talks there's a ted talk on um i'm doing a ted talk in about a month in the oh, last yeah in the last the, my favorite ted talk was a guy who did a longitudinal study on relationships. And basically he studied, I forgot his name, but he studied 250 kids from Harvard in starting in 1936 and 250 of the poorest kids in Boston. And he studied their lives. And it's the study's actually still going on right now. People are in their nineties right now. And he saw some people go from, you know, down here to up here. And some people go from up here to down here. And what he found was the the common denominator to live a meaningful life is having quality relationships. And you don't have to have 50 best friends. You could have two. You could have one. But having having the close relationships with people, that is what matters. And that really resonates with me. So um, that, to me, developing relationships with people um, of all ages, of from all, all all over the world it just it's something that's very important to me thanks for listening to the million dollar mastermind if you felt there were any valuable takeaways from this episode please take a minute and leave us a five-star review your feedback is important and really helps us get the word out to a wider audience remember we have a valuable webinar that is absolutely free Register for it right now at whiteallenwinning.com. Thanks for listening.